0: Welcome back to case of the Sunday scaries. I'm Elise and I'm Annie. And today you might recognize our guest from his popular psychology in Seattle podcast and YouTube. But the incredible man that is the face of those channels is Dr. Kurt Honda, a psychotherapist. Did I pronounce that correctly. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did a lot of checking on that one. And professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You and I got to speak a few years back on another podcast, and I'm just so happy to have you on Case of the Sunday Scaries today to discuss something that is unfortunately so close to my heart. Domestic violence, obviously, is a topic I wish we didn't have to discuss, but it's so present in our cases covering true crime, but also in our society. And so I'm just grateful to have you here to answer some of our listeners' questions. So I want listeners to know before we start that we had a lot of questions about safety and protecting yourself as you leave a domestic abuse relationship. And we're going to be having a survivor on for our next episode in this series who worked closely with thehotline.org. So we're going to direct all those questions to her. But today, we're just going to be focusing on understanding abuse and recovery for victims of abuse.
1: Dr. Honda, Elise recently introduced me to your YouTube channel. I'm already a fan, so it's great to meet you. Um, But I heard in one of your episodes that you used to work with perpetrators of domestic abuse. Is that still an area that you work in?
2: I loosely do, in that the clients that I work with will occasionally exhibit abusive, coercive behavior, but... I, earlier in my career, was more concentrated in that work in which I worked with mandated by law because they had been convicted of a crime and were mandated by law to go to a court-mandated treatment program that tried to help perpetrators to not perpetrate again. And so I wasn't the DV specialist, that was someone else, but I was a therapist helping them on the mental health side, but 90% of what we did had to do with perpetration Reduction.
1: I bet you've heard some very interesting things from people.
2: Uh, well, I had to dismantle all of my myths, my misunderstandings of these individuals in my mind. I had a common understanding of them as being these evil, aggressive, constantly angry people. But when I met them, they were vulnerable, sad, lonely, doesn't justify what they did at all. But I spent a lot of time confused and thinking, are we just attracting like these really different sort of perpetrators? But it turned out not so. And then I had to completely rebuild my understanding from scratch and learn from them and also start applying other models of understanding to human developments and attachment reactivity to these individuals and have a much more accurate understanding of these individuals in general. There's a lot of different paths to abuse, of course, but generally speaking, the common profile of someone is someone who is 100% not justified in doing any of the abusive behaviors, but on the inside, they have a very warped understanding of trying to retain relationships. They're actually trying to establish attachment security through control, abuse, harm, violence. And they learned it when they were young or it worked when they were young or something. It was modeled to them. And they have no other way of being able to show or to bid or to communicate that they are feeling lonely or they're feeling rejected or they're feeling isolated. They're worried they're going to lose their partner you know, all of us have those experiences where you see your partner look at someone else, for example, and you just have a little bit of a thought. And how do we react to that? Well, a very minority, but a sizable, noticeable minority of people, the only answer to that question is control, abuse, harm, coercion, belittling, gaslighting, all that stuff. They think that is the answer to the problem that we all experience. The rest of us, have, you know, non-abusive ways of dealing with it hopefully, but we might have also problematic ways of dealing with right. it, you know, like yeah. run, running away or drinking or cheating or something. But it's not harmful and criminal the way that these individuals do.
0: I think that would be hard. I mean, you touched on it, but especially for myself and having the experience that I've already shared through this podcast, being in a situation of very, very high control it would be very hard for me to separate my experience and then talking to these people and kind of having empathy for what what their journey is, right? Because you're saying that it's not always something that is maybe a conscious behavior. It's more something that has been modeled to them, right? And mm. so, yeah, I can't imagine it would be hard to go in with some very preconceived notions and then try to set those aside.
2: Yeah, and I want to be clear, if you don't want to have empathy or compassion for these people, even though I'm presenting an opportunity for that, Uh, then don't. Uh, People often will conflate what I'm saying with a recommendation that one accept this behavior or put up with it or see the inner child in these individuals and try to help them. And the answer, you know, no. In my personal life, when I see it, when someone abuses me, which has happened in my 52 years on this planet, occasionally happens, and I'm stuck with that person for one reason or another, and I have compassion for them, I I know where it comes from. I'm a therapist. I'm always analyzing everyone. So it's just a matter of course. And I have that perspective. And yet I distance myself. Like I separate myself from them. I'm not their, I mean, if they were my client, then obviously I don't, but I'm talking about people in my personal life. I'm not their therapist. It's not my fault. I might actually even contribute to their attachment insecurity that might cause them to be even more likely to be triggered in the future. That's not my responsibility. I only have one life to live. I'm not going to sacrifice myself for other people's criminal, abusive, harmful activity. I'm just not going to do that.
1: Yeah. The word I've been trying to learn more about is boundaries. So I feel like we can all benefit <laughs> from that. Yeah. But after Ali shared her story and then we discussed another case in our series, we opened it up to our listeners and we asked them to write in their questions. We have a lot of good ones for you and I want to get into those. But before I do, I actually have a question you from myself? So I'm the first one. I feel so honored. I have never personally gone through an abusive relationship, thankfully. But what stood out to me when listening to Elisa's story and then also Molly's story was that there seems to be so many similarities in behaviors or how the abuse started. What are some of the warning signs and behaviors of abusers that people should be aware of if they can? I understand sometimes it might be where you don't even realize it's happening. But do you have any red flags or warning signs that really stick out to you?
2: Yeah, many. I actually jotted some down in preparation for this just so I could not make a mistake about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One is belittling speech. Someone who belittles you makes you feel like you're small. The other part of this is that even if you know the warning signs, you might have been through so much abuse yourself or mistreatment that it feels normal to you or you have a hard time noting that you deserve better or something. So there's a lot of factors that play into whether or not you're going to be able to protect yourself. But if you want warning signs, yeah, belittling speech doesn't mean... So all these warning signs doesn't mean the individual will become abusive, but it's It's a sign. Something to take note of. Yeah, something that red flag for sure. Um, Never admitting fault or apologizing. This is a big one. It's annoying to begin with, but if someone was doing this, it would be a red flag that they might become abusive in the future. And by abusive, you know, it might help to define that it can be violent. It can be obviously nonviolent, but essentially it's, it can be controlling as well, but it also might not have a theme of control. Essentially, it's making you as the individual feel as though you're walking on eggshells, you feel intimidated, you feel like you're not good enough You are dependent on them, overly dependent on There's a lot of different angles to it, so we should expand it, not just hitting, obviously. There's a lot of different versions of this. Basically, it harms you. It's a harmful style of relationship that ends up psychologically and in other dimensions. It harms you in your life. Um, So belittling speech, never admitting fault. Uh, Frequent jealousy, so frequent triggers of jealousy. It's normal to get jealous. Everyone does, but if someone is frequently getting jealous and, and certainly the way that they get jealous is a big indicator. If someone's just like, Hey, like um, how come you're spending all your time with this other person? That's one sort of signal or bid for more attention or something. Right. But if someone says like, I don't want you dressing like that because I don't want people looking at you in that way or something, or um, really, you're going to hang out with those people again. I, I don't know if, I don't like those people. I don't think you. I think they're a bad influence on you. Know that that kind of messaging is a huge red flag. Actually, making you feel bad for spending time with friends and family, commenting on how you dress, toxic masculinity. Actually, adherence to traditional gender norms is a sign. It's a red flag. It's a factor. Aggression, alpha male talk, anger when they should be expressing sadness or fear or something. Uh, very sure of themselves some very traditional, and this is kind of a tough one, you know, because some people really look for based on what they're looking for in a partner. They want that person who opens the door for them. They want that person who pays for dinner. They want that person who is protective or sees themselves as the strong one or something. And that can be a good thing, but it can also be a humongous red flag. It could be admirable that the person is on top of their stuff and is there to help you, is there to protect you. But it is a potential tip of the iceberg to a general idea that they want to control you. They don't want you to have the your, your own agency of opening up your own door. They don't want you to have money to pay for things because they don't want you to have freedom because they're worried that if you have that control and that power, that you will do things that will lead you to leaving them, and so they're on a mission to create a holistic control over various aspects of your life, because over your life, because they believe that's the only way to attachment security, which is not true. And I should add an asterisk that there are psychopathic, sadistic, abusive people who are not doing it for attachment reasons. They're they're being abusive just because they don't have empathy and for sport. And, yeah, exactly. Um, but that's really rare. I mean, the you could go your whole life and never run into a psychopath or a sadistic personality individual. And there's a lot of misinterpretation. There's a lot of overlabeling of that because it could certainly look like that, and it takes you know someone that sort of understands that to be able to differentiate the two. But anyway, rigid love bombing, so is another sign if someone is really pressuring you to move faster in a relationship, move in, get married, have kids. Um, Say you love them, go exclusive, you know, all those kinds of steps. There's nothing wrong with being in love with someone and being like, oh oh my God, I want to be with you all the time. But if you push back and they get upset, then that's what we call love bombing. There's nothing wrong with having tremendous motivation to be with someone, but if they truly love you, then they'll let you push back a little bit. They'll be like, well, bummer, but I'll wait because I love you so much. I don't want to pressure you. And again, a lot of people misinterpret this because for some people based on the way they were raised when someone's love bombing you and you push back you're just like yeah i don't know if i'm ready you know i just came out of a kind of a bad relationship and and i don't know if i'm ready to move forward and your partner is just like how come you're doing this to me i mean i love you so much like we're made for each other why are you why are you hurting me like this it's so like why? you know don't i'm not your past boyfriend like and person might genuinely love you and so you're receiving it as Whoa, not only does this person love me, not only does this person see me in a good light, not only does this person feel it you know, make me feel secure, you know, I'm the only person in this person's life. I feel, you know, it's a good feeling. And when I push back, it's like actually that that proves to me how much they love me. Because if I were to push back and they were to say, okay, you know, I'll let that one go, then that means they don't love me times 10, you know, they only love me times five. And that's a huge misunderstanding of what to look for in the beginning of a relationship and a and it's a massive beginning to that cycle because once you give in on that then they learn all I have to do is just lay it on thick and eventually you'll give in you know what I mean yeah. I have to stay how much it hurts me that you're not letting me do this or you're not we're not becoming more and more enmeshed you know for long it's something like I can't believe that you want your own bank account how come You know, you're just separate from me. Like you don't love me. And then, you know, it just goes further down that. I can't believe you want to spend time with your family. I thought we had a good marriage. And that's the seduction of it, right? Because especially if you've gone through a lot of attachment insecurity, you're like, oh my God. I've never felt so secure. This this person, I'm the only person in this person's life, and this can be real. You know, the way it's portrayed in the media, often it's it's fake, but for a lot of these perpetrators, it's real. They they really do genuinely love you. They they have their own attachment insecurities and their own problems, and so you are their savior, and you feel that, and
0: feel the it, weight of it.
2: Yeah, and it's attractive. It's secure. It's it's like I finally found some. You know, I've dated all these people that. Never wanted to commit. And this person, you know, other signs are emotional volatility, particularly around attachment and security. You know, if they really get triggered and fly off the handle, there's a lot of people like that, but that's a, a sign of things. Also, a kind of a random sign is when they give you messages that you don't know what you're doing in bed. It's a common theme that they will try to humiliate you or coerce you. You know, it's various different angles to this. So basically, they will make you feel inadequate sexually, as if you're wow. not doing things right, or you're not open enough, or you're not into it enough or something. And it, right. it, it, often it's an expression of their own in- insecurity. They, they need extreme overt indications of you know absolute love and security. And in bed, there can be insecurities, there can be uncertainties, particularly in the beginning. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I would like this, or are you into this? Mm-hmm. Is there something you want to change? but it's another thing to be like you're not doing it right how come how come you're doing it that way? Is that way you've always done it? You need to do it this way. you know you need to open up more you know there's a there's a belittling uh, a very self- assured way of of talking to people um, the last two are talking negatively about their past partners. again, it's not a huge indication, but Hearing people, you know, if you met someone and there were a couple signs, but they were like pretty good friends with their past partners and you had evidence to believe that that was true, then that would be a, a tick in the column of not, you know. But abusive individuals, you know, they tend to burn a lot of bridges in their intimate relationship. Um, also, a history of intimate partner violence in their family, right? If they talk about their parents being violent with each other in some way then that is, you know, I wouldn't reject someone on that, that um, detail, but it'd be another potential sign. Yeah.
0: Those are all very interesting because some of them I'm just sitting here nodding going, yep, (laughs) like ding, ding, that rings a bell. And, you know, Annie and I covered Molly's case, which was so tragic last episode. And it's funny because one thing we brought up is I was saying, if you ever hear my ex is crazy over and over again, like, just be aware. (laughs) So it's interesting that you said that. One thing that I hadn't heard before that you were talking about is, and I don't want to go too deep into it, but the traditional gender roles and relationships. And that stuck out to me because I always say my dad is my person. I, I lucked out in the dad category and I have amazing parents, both of them, but me and my dad just communicate really well. But they showed me and chose to have very traditional values. And just to clarify for people that hear that and say, Well, what's wrong with wanting those things or those, you know, traditional gender roles? And my understanding of what you're saying is that you have the choice. Mm -hmm. That's the difference of saying, yeah, I want a joint bank account. Yes, I want him to take care of the finances and I take care of the children or whatever you see those roles as. So it's not necessarily a negative unless you lose your voice in that. Am I understanding that correctly?
2: Well, it's just a red flag. It's just a or a yellow flag, if you will if you were in a, you know, the first five dates and you had that in addition to four, the other ones, then you should have a, a question mark there and, and you should start to watch out for things. Um, Just traditional gender roles on its own doesn't mean anything. It just means that that's people's preference, but yeah, uh, choice. But it also kind of depends on how, right? If If it's just um, paying for things or a way of uh, a sort of a vibe of I'm strong, I will protect you, like I'll be in charge of the security, like in my house, I'm in charge of the security of the house. My wife, Stacey, doesn't, uh, she's concerned with the security of the house, you know, as a content provider yourself, you you, you know, know, people say things, it's it's terrifying. (laughs) And so- You, uh, I'm a guy, so it's less of an issue for me, obviously, but, um, but you know, it's still kind of an issue. And so, so I take that on and I consider that to be my man responsibility. Uh, I would feel less of a man Mm -hmm. if I deferred to her on that, you know, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of preferences and and that kind of, you might even call like a romantic preference of some sort. But if my wife said, you're doing it a way I don't want you to do it. I wanna I wanna do it. And I I would let her do it. You know, I don't I don't need to do it. I'm doing it because I think it fits within our relationship in terms of the you know, the labor distribution. But my masculinity, my self-esteem isn't dependent mm-hmm. on being seen as the man of the house. So that's the difference. Because when you have someone who is very fragile in their masculinity and they need you to adhere to certain gender uh, norms and they need to exhibit that, then that is a problem because it's not out of just a preference or a romantic vibe. It's it's a desperation because they're running from extreme low self-esteem and a constant worry of not being seen as the perfect man, and thus they're going to lose their partners. And so they're constantly trying to assert themselves as that, and also it justifies their abusive behavior. But it also, they've been taught that that makes them worthy. And if they can't establish themselves to everyone around them, that they are the perfect toxic male, they have this idea, because they were taught it, that no one will want to be with them. They'll be a weak, worthless woman-man that will never have anyone love them or respect them.
0: That makes sense. Um, I'm going to revert back to talking about my relationship through this just to keep our listeners who wrote in anonymous and kind of take their questions and deflect it onto what I've already shared publicly just to keep that hidden. So in my relationship, I felt very, very quickly that he created, and I mean, I was a part of it, but It was not a mentality that I was used to in relationships. It's sort of it's us against the world, Bonnie and Clyde telling me things like you said when you were discussing warning flags uh, that were negative about friends and family and and almost making me question if they didn't have my best interests at heart. And I I describe it as feeling like my world constantly was getting smaller and smaller almost without me realizing it. And through therapy, I obviously understood that that's part of the isolation tactic. Can you talk about why isolation is so important and like a common tactic used by perpetrators of abuse, regardless of the type of abuse?
2: Well, I might use slightly different words. The word tactic often implies volition. And a lot of these individuals, it's not a voluntary plan that they have. They're not waking up in the morning and say, okay, if I isolate her... If I put her down, if I gaslight her, they're not doing that. They're reacting in the moment and their reactivity is, it has this very, uh, destructive effect that is, um, secondary to it. They might kind of understand that that's what the secondary effect is, but that's not usually where it's generated from. There are psychopaths and Machiavellian dark triad, dark, you know, people who are like that, but, and people will run across them at times. But generally speaking, when I speak about perpetrators, that's not the case. It wasn't the case when I treated them. that I The psychopaths never entered my treatment program. It was always these other folks. So anyway, I'll use slightly different language. And um, the effect is still the same. It's still harmful. But the us against the world, there's really two often aspects to it. One is is that because of their attachment injuries, they've never had secure attachments. And so when they meet someone that they believe and have hopes, massive amounts of hopes that this person will be an attachment that is secure and safe and dedicated and long-lasting and loving, and then a childish version of attachment, reactivity, and hopes will come forward. So an 18-month-old child, does you know, they have a similar mindset. It's, it's not us. They would say us against the world, but the child would be like, it's me and mommy. We are one. Mommy loves me. I love mommy. And mommy's always there for me. And um, I'm solely interested in what is going on with her. And I want her to be happy. And she wants me to be happy. And she wakes me up in the morning and she dresses me and she feeds me. And she, you know, like the whole thing, it's all encompassing and, and every child deserves that, but a lot of people don't get that. And so they retain that need, that, that very, Uh, you know, 18 month old version of that need into adulthood, maybe even until they die because they never get it, unfortunately. But so when they finally meet someone, all of that need and attachment need comes pouring out and to them, they word it in that way. It feels it's us against the world because it's an all encompassing love. It's not just romantic companionship love, it's, it's deep, deep, deep dependence. And for a time they are able to be vulnerable with the target because they feel safe in the moment often it's in the beginning before there's any kind of disappointment and so it'll be framed as a tactic but it, for the vast majority of individuals that do this even though it is abusive it is it's from their heart they're desperate and again i want to remind everyone i'm not saying you're supposed to be with them because they're damaged i'm saying run they need to go to therapy right. <laughs> let them you know recover after 15 years maybe you can be friends maybe after that point so that's one aspect. The other aspect is that they do want you all to themselves in the same way that a child wants their parent all to themselves. It's not that, "Oh my god, I'm so deeply in love with you, it's us against the world." And they also because of their track record, they have a perspective that the world is against them. They they don't have a a rosy idea of the world and people. They don't trust other people. They've been really disappointed. And so when they finally meet someone, it's a black and white experience. You are Good, you're all good, you're all wonderful, you're all secure. Our relationship is perfect. You can do no wrong. And the rest of the world sucks because I've experienced the nuances of the world and it's been so disappointing. And they're also communicating don't be with anyone else because I need you all to myself and any other attachment or interest or hobby or job or anything. It will terrify me because. I will worry I'm going to lose you. And I, I'm i so desperately in need of you all the time that I need you to only be focused on me. So it's us against the world.
0: That definitely, definitely makes sense that you would see any other relationship or, you know, like you said, attachment to a job or a career as a threat to their time with you and their bond with you. That makes perfect sense. Something I've seen you discuss a few times in your videos and something that really grinds my gears as well is when I don't know when this started, but it seems like in the past two years, everyone thinks that they have gone to school and have a doctorate degree in therapy. But it also feels very invalidating sometimes to to something that I've gone through when people are throwing out the term gaslighting, especially when they're they're really just describing a disagreement or an argument. And oh, he gaslighted me, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, they decide to use it. But it feels very frustrating from someone who's actually been through that experience. Can you describe to our listeners and clear the air of what gaslighting actually is, please?
2: So, the the caveat I'll say is that I I've been a clinician, a professor for twenty five plus years, and I have been really trying to get the public to be aware of all this stuff and the need for therapy and you know relationships and abuse and. 25 years ago there was very little awareness of, about any of this and so as awareness increases you're going to have people misunderstanding terms which is not a great side effect but the bigger issue here is the celebration of everyone in my field who has been trying to propagate these ideas and raise awareness and so that you know this is a you know it sucks but it's it's a result of something that's overall good the fact that even people know the word to begin with to to misuse it is surprising to me. So to define it, I it has been defined in the clinical literature for decades, and it, it refers to abusive relationships. It's not a one-off conversation you're having with someone. And so I spent some time looking at the clinical literature and thinking about it myself and thinking about how people use it. There are three different definitions, three different types, if you will. One is what we'll call purposeful gaslighting, which is the way most people refer to gaslighting, uh, they're referring to volitional, purposeful gaslighting. And this is when someone goes on a campaign. So it's a longer term thing to purposefully manipulate someone through psychological means to have the individual lack confidence in their own memory, perception, and judgment, sanity in general. So it's a campaign to purposely manipulate someone so that that individual questions their own sanity, their own memory. They, they don't think they can gauge what really happened, you know, because they're constantly told you're wrong. That didn't happen. You're crazy. You always do that. You're always overreacting. Your brain doesn't work right. You know, all these messages and eventually, you know, if you're isolated, you start to believe it because it seems like, well, they seem really sure of themselves and I'm not so sure. And so that's purposeful gaslighting. Number two is the more common, you know, behavioral version of gaslighting, which I I call non-purposeful gaslighting. And so this is, you know, in reference to what I was talking earlier, when you have someone with attachment insecurity, great attachment insecurity, they will, as a side effect, gaslight someone. A common example is you'll have a fight and they will just be laying into you. They'll just be saying, You're so stupid you're just so dumb. You don't know what you're talking about. You're, look at you. And the next day you say to them, Hey, last night was kind of rough. You know, you said these things, these phrases. And they're like, I didn't say that. What are you talking about? Uh, I never said that. You're completely misinterpreting me. Okay. So on, on one hand, this, and and if this happens over a longer period of time, it will have the, the side effect of gaslighting the victim into thinking, do I understand things or am I overreacting? And so, the, the reason why this individual is doing this is in this non purposeful category, which is the most common, is that we all operate from how we feel. We all remember how we feel. And we all do this in relationships. Every conflict you've ever had with your partner, you do this. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. You know, it, it, it's commonplace. But for the individual with tremendous attachment security, One, they're so desperate for, and they're so worried they're going to lose their partner that they will resort to anything to retain their partner, including completely discounting the other person because they believe if I can just erase that negative thought from the other person, they will no longer think negatively about me and thus they will never leave me. The other thing is they're so emotional. They're, you know, their, their triggers are so quick and their emotional reactivity is so high where someone else during a conflict might be like a five out of 10 and thus filtering everything through those emotions, they're always a 10 out of 10. And so they're filtering things through tremendous emotion. And when we filter perceptions and experiences through tremendous emotion, we distort it um, because of the way it feels, you know, in their head, they're like, last night, I wasn't putting you down. You were putting me down because that's how it felt to them. But that isn't what happened. If you recorded it, they were putting you down. But because of their distortions, because of their 18 month old vulnerabilities, it felt as though you were putting them down. And so it it they're just like, that never happened. I wasn't putting you down. You were putting me down. Again, you rinse and repeat this enough times, the victim is gonna start to question their sanity because this, you know, the abusive individuals seem so sure of themselves. Mm-hmm. The third type is something I added on after people started writing in, which I call systemic gaslighting, which isn't technically the clinical definition, but the way I write it here is it's an effect from an ongoing unfair system of power that results in counter-reactions, counter to the target, sometimes micro-reactions, to calls for justice from the victim that are so comprehensive that the victim starts to question their grasp on fairness and their own victimhood. So you have say a woman at a place of work and she is being discriminated against by a bunch of men, uh, maybe even by other women. And she is at first saying, hey, I'm being mistreated here. I'm not being, I'm not being paid enough or I'm not getting a promotion or I'm being ignored in meetings or something or I'm getting mistreated. And they just repeated, they bring it up, but the system just shuts them down repeatedly over and over again. And then over time, as a, If you have no other support system and no other touchstone to ground you, you end up start thinking, well, I, I must be crazy because no one else agrees with me. The power structure, they're, they're supposed to know what they're doing. They don't agree with anything I'm saying. So I must be overly sensitive. And so I'm just going to believe that I'm the dumb one and I'm just going to shut up. And, and so that's just, and that can happen, you know, and I, I think that's a viable usage of the term gaslighting, which happens all the time, yeah.
1: It's hard to understand why anyone would want to treat someone they supposedly love and care about in these ways. But one of our listeners wrote in and she asked, are perpetrators consciously aware that they are being manipulative or is this a behavior that has been modeled to them and that they learn?
2: Yeah. So some a very small minority say, I don't know, three percent ish of perpetrators are aware. They wake up at the morning and literally say. This is what I'm going to do. They might even have planned it out. But you know, Andrew Tate, for example, if you're aware, yes. uh, I, I can't know. But the way that it seems, he woke up in the morning and literally made choices, and it was evidence that he went on a campaign, knowing that he was going to manipulate people and didn't care about anyone's feelings, and and a very classic con artist, psychopathic man. Those are pe- those people are out there. They're particular. There's a spectrum but they're very rare. The vast majority of individuals, when they're being abusive, it's an exaggeration of something that we all do. So I'll, maybe I'll just try to figure out an example from all of us, but it's, it's an extreme exaggeration of something that we all do. Let's say that my wife is really stressed out and she's distant from me. like She's cold with me. She's not trying to hurt my feelings, but she's so stressed out that she's shutting down And I don't know she's stressed out because she hasn't told me anything about it. So all I notice is that she's being distant from me and I might come to her and say like, hey, how's it going? And she just frowns and she's suffering on the inside, but I don't know that. And so through my perceptions, she's being a jerk face and maybe she doesn't even love me anymore. I don't know. And so I start to have my feelings. I start to have my conclusions. And then I might go to her Uh, You know, if this is prolonged and, you know, maybe there's a moment and then I start getting a bad mood with her. She starts to pick up on that. Things kind of escalate. And then uh, say there's a moment where I I say, hey, let's have date night. And she's just like, ah, I'm kind of busy. And I've had all this built up emotion about all this. And and I'm just like, I might be destructive in that moment. You know, I might say something like, you've never loved me. I don't know what I'd say. It's hard to put myself.
0: I get it. What you're starting to use, always and nevers.
2: You're a cold person who doesn't care about my feelings. You're always disregarding my feelings. You never listen to me. You never care about anything that I've ever done. And you're a horrible partner or something. That's a horrible thing to say to someone, but you know, something along those lines. That's, that's mean. I'm being mean to her, but you know, we've all been there. Right. And if you haven't, or if you think you haven't, you're in denial. So there's that we've all been there (laughs) and, uh, So to the abusive person, they're so hurt and so scared and the behavior has been modeled to them to be very hurtful and very controlling that it's that times a hundred. So, you know, we've all been hurtful because in that moment when I'm saying that to her, I'm not trying to be nice, you know, (laughs) and I'm trying to get under her skin. You know what I mean? Not saying, hmm, I wonder what will get under her skin. I'm just like, I'm angry, you know, and I'm I'm, I'm blasting. And you times that by 100, and that's what an abusive person is doing.
1: That ties in really nicely to another question our listener sent in. We had quite a few questions around understanding exactly what you said, the difference between a really heated argument and things that are said in the heat of the moment. I've said it. I'm sure a lot of people, people have said it. Versus verbal abuse. So can you kind of get into that? Yeah. I mean,
2: it's, there's a spectrum and there's no scientific hard line, but generally we want to reserve the word abuse for a certain degree of harm to another person. For example, belittling to make someone feel like they're small, like they're stupid, like they're insignificant insults, this kind of thing. Like in the example I gave where I'm yelling at my wife, yelling, I guess is hard to th- imagine, but to say it's <laughs> something like, you don't ever care about my feelings. That's a very common thing that I'll hear people say to their spouses. You know, that's pretty mean. It, it can't possibly be true. You're basically calling someone a manipulative psychopath that has no empathy, particularly for their partner, for their husband. That's That's quite an accusation. But, you know, depending on the situation, I don't know if my wife would feel... Extremely harmed by that. Whereas if I said something like, you're a fucking idiot mm-hmm. because you completely ignored what I've been going through, you know, that's a different tone. It's a different choice of words. I, it's the same kind of mm-hmm. communication, right? I'm, I'm still saying the general thing that I'm trying to get across. But I think you can usually tell the difference if you have been modeled healthy behavior. Or know how to tell the difference. You know, the ability to know the distinction is dependent on your self-esteem, your self-worth, and what you've seen in your life. You know, for me, I didn't grow up with any kind of abusive behavior in my household, and so when I see it, it's like whoa, I, I, yeah. Whereas other people, it'll just go right over their head, like it, like it's just normal talk, you know, because it, because it is normal talk to them. Uh, and it'll even go so far as it's not only just normal. That's the way spouses express love. People will even equate the absence of that as an absence of intensity of love and and meaning, right? That's another issue pre-insight, pre-therapy.
0: And I think too, isn't there, depending on the dynamics of the couple, there's oftentimes too where even some of that like sarcasm and stuff is used in kind of a jokey way that both people understand that it's not to cause hurt in their specific dynamic.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all In what is the intent and what's the effect, Sure, uh, which can be independent of each other. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) if you had a sarcastic, funny relationship and you called each other a piece of crap and it was funny to the two of you, then in that context, it's not abusive. It's the same abusive phrase, but it's not actually abusive.
0: Before we get into some questions regarding recovery, from these type of relationships. Uh, We often hear, you know, zebras don't change their stripes. People don't change. But is that true that someone who has exhibited abusive behavior can't change?
2: Well, a sadistic psychopath, someone with a legit personality disorder is in all likelihood going to have a really hard time changing and even wanting to change. If Andrew Tate is a psychopath, which I can't know, the chance that somehow individuals like that will say, I think there's something wrong with me. I would like some help with it. Yeah, It's just so small. If they did want to change, they could. There's plenty of psychopaths and sadistic people for that matter who have been treated. I've treated some of them who have been able to learn a different behavioral pattern. They can't change their personality, but they can change their impulses and trying to take other things into account. But so that, that's that category. And again, we're talking about a very small group of people. 3-ish percent that you might run into, 1 or 2 percent. For everyone else, A 100 percent. They're absolutely changeable, again, if they seek help and if they have proper treatment. And I've treated many people and had, in fact, from my memory, all the, and it's impossible to know, but we would do follow-ups with these individuals and their partners. Everyone we treated in this mandated group Got better. You you would really see it—the transformation. There was very profound changes that had to happen in their personality, their attachment style, their understanding of relationships, their understanding of their own entitlement, their understanding of what a man is. Uh, All that would have to change a lot, and it did. And it took a year or two, maybe three. But when you see that transformation, when you see the light bulb go off in their head, because for them. They want attachment security, these individuals. And if you teach them an effective way to actually get that, especially if it doesn't land them in prison, but but really more right. important, it's effective, you know, because these individuals, these abusive individuals, they're resorting to a defense. And we all do this. They're just having a particularly destructive defense. We all have defensive ways of trying to retain our attachments that shoot us in the foot that ultimately don't work. We're trying to to make them work, but they ultimately don't. In my scenario with my wife, if I were to pull away and passive aggressively give her the silent treatment, that might be a way of me trying to get her to notice that I'm hurt or to stop doing that or something. That's not effective. It's not going to work. It's not healthy. Everyone does this. The abusive person does it in a particular way and their reactivity is very high. Once you can help them to gain awareness and to heal from the attachment traumas that they've been through, which they've all been through, then absolutely they they can get better. And I've treated many people along those lines.
0: A quick follow-up question. So obviously you were treating, I understand that you were treating people individually or as a couple or both?
2: Yeah, both and also group. So the mandated folks were in a group, six to 10 individuals. But in my private practice, it's Individuals and couples, and also individuals who are victims. So I would help the victim client go home and influence the abusive person. Obviously, there's the topic of leaving the person, but often that wasn't at the top of the priority list at the mm-hmm. beginning. And I could help the victim to engineer their relationship to be different, you know, which isn't super easy, but. Can be done also with families. You know, there's abusive uh, to children. There's also abusive children. There's abusive teenagers that I would treat as well.
1: It's very interesting. I Had a lot of questions about how can someone support a loved one or a friend who is in an abusive relationship, but they're not quite ready to leave. So, how could someone show support and say, "I love you, I'm here for you," but also not necessarily agree that they're still in that relationship? Like, how Mm -hmm. does what does that look like to you?
2: Yeah, well. It's the same with me as a therapist when I'm treating someone and I'm witnessing them uh, say it's an individual and I determine that they're in in an abusive relationship. I might even say that to them. I care deeply about them. It's to some extent my job to help them to be safe and to not be harmed and traumatized. I have a heart and also it's sort of my job to, to, to try to help. And so it can become very frustrating and and very hurtful, very painful to watch someone that you care about go through pain. So the first thing that clinicians do and other people should as well is to just take note of their own feelings because if you don't have awareness of your feelings, then you'll just act in an undifferentiated manner. And often you'll have, you'll make mistakes and and you'll be counter to what you ultimately want, which is to help your friend. Um, For example, it, for myself, I might be hoping that the person leaves, but of course, I don't just tell people that. I might say something like, you know, as your therapist, I really care about you. And I had to say, as a human being, I, I kind of wish you left this person, but you know, I'm not going to tell you that because that's your choice and I'm not going to judge you if you stay. But I just have to say that's present, you know, just kind of put that out there and move on. So I might do that. But if I don't note my feelings about it, I might get frustrated over time that they're not leaving. And I might, you know, I might be subtly asking questions and they might be making excuses for the abusive person. Like, well, you know, they'll get better. It's not that bad. And I'm like, it's not that it's really bad what you're talking about. And then I start to get frustrated because now I'm kind of fighting with my client or my friend. I'm in opposition to them and I'm judging them because my pain could be alleviated if they left the person. My worry would be alleviated if they left the person that's not them that's that's these are my feelings it's not their fault that i'm having these feelings i'm affected by the individual but i have to take ownership of my feelings it's like okay i'm starting to take on the responsibility of this it's not my job and i understand this is a bigger issue than just me saying you know maybe you should leave it's okay to have these feelings and i might express them i might get support from but i if i just operate from those feelings i'll chastise i'll withdrawal. I'll judge. I'll, you know, whatever. There's actually a great scene in Big Little Lies where second season and the therapist is doing this actually to Nicole Kidman uh, character and pretty awful therapy, honestly, but, you know, kind of normal, kind of normal for therapists to do that at times. So it's not like on the scale of things, extremely strange, but, um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good therapy, you know, because the idea is somehow like, oh, I never thought of that. Thank you, therapist, for saying I never. You can leave someone, really. You right. know, it's such a. It's like Captain Obvious. Like yeah.
0: Never thought of that before. <laughs> right. Thanks
2: for a therapist explaining to me that I could leave someone. Hmm. Okay. You know, the thing that it ignores is that one, it's hard to leave. It's scary to leave. But it's also there's often a tremendous amount of attachment to these individuals. It's not just bad it's it's good at times you know it's not all abuse there are there's there's tenderness or love or attachment or you know dependency or whatever there's that the other aspect is a lot of victims particularly if they're in a prolonged experience of abuse not only from the abusive relationship itself present but you know when they were growing up they have schemas potentially where they feel they're incompetent and unworthy and they've experimented with being alone. They might've even left their partner for a period of time, but when they're alone and they have no one to replace that void, it's worse for them. And that's hard to imagine, but for people with these kinds of upbringings, these kinds of schemas, it's worse for them to be alone and not abused, which is great, but to be alone with their own feelings of incompetence, their own fears of screwing everything up, their own Worries of they'll never find anyone else. And, you know, they're quite desperate. And so that's why both people often in these relationships have tremendous attachment security. Not always, but in the prolonged experience, the prolonged relationships, they often both come from a very similar childhood, but they each are taking different sides of the coin. And so to just suggest to someone to leave without there being. A tremendous attachment safety net, often in the form of therapy and, and a pretty robust support system, which the abusive person has eliminated from their life. You know, to just suggest that to them is um, naive to, to that reality for them. So just understand all that kind of foundation, and then be there for them. <laughs> well, victims need friends too. They they need to go to the movies or have a drink or. Have a laugh or something, watch 90 day fiance mm-hmm. or something and you know <laughs> it, it's fine you know you don't have to be constantly focused on someone's ab- victim status, you know they it, it, they're they're, a, they're more than that. they're a full human being. in a pinch, I would say be a good friend and, and listen and don't pressure. you can certainly say how you feel you, a, when I hear your stories it, it sounds awful and I'm scared for you and I wish I could snap my fingers and take away the abuser. Snap my fingers and make you leave, but I know that's stupid because you know that it's more complicated than that. But but I'm here for you, and you know uh, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm not gonna not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna run away. I'm not gonna freak out. That that would be what I would say is.
0: Well, one question that we had that kind of shocked me when we got it in because it wasn't something I thought about. It wasn't even something that I've discussed in my therapy journey. So I found it really interesting, but in order, again, to keep this listener's story private to them and respect that, I'm going to talk about my own experience. I had a very bad relationship that escalated stalking and harassment, and it wasn't physical during the course of the relationship, but when I left, there was moments where it definitely crossed those boundaries. And so now um, the question from this listener was, how do you discuss as you enter the dating world again, how do you discuss triggers. For instance, mine, I have a very quick reaction to someone touching my neck or putting their arm around me when I'm not expecting it because I had trauma revolving my neck in that relationship. Um, And it's completely involuntary, right? I just naturally flinch or pull away. You can tell in my body that I'm getting defensive because my body feels like I need to protect myself. Um, And it's not a reaction that they're expecting or desiring from Trying to you know cuddle up and be lovey dovey with you. So how do you, especially in new relationships, discuss some of those triggers without having to kind of dump a lot of information you might not be ready to share with that person yet?
2: Yeah, uh, I'm sort of smirking because I recommend dumping. I'm married, so I don't have to deal with this anymore. But uh, so it's it's easy it's easy, <laughs> it's easy for me to say. But I I would my recommendation along and there's various different topics in this category, which is, it's a litmus test, lay it out there, first date. And if they run, screw them, you don't want to, you don't want to date them anyway. You know, if they're that afraid of a real conversation, like, really, you're looking for someone that's that fragile and superficial and hasn't been around the block, because the person you want to keep is the person that stays and the person you really want to keep is the person's like, oh my god, I, w- I wanted to say something too. And often there's a genderized situation to this, too, that somehow men don't have these experiences. they do. Men are abused. Men are traumatized. So if you're heterosexual, you're a woman and cis and you're and you're dating, um don't think like you're this weird thing. So shame is the enemy. And so if you're ashamed, you gotta attack that, and that is not okay. There's nothing to be ashamed of, obviously. For someone else to attack you and traumatize you, uh, you're having a normal human reaction, as you were saying at least uh, there's nothing shameful about it, and if you present it with no shame and they don't like it, like red flag, so <laughs> you know you just say, "Hey, by the way, you know before anything happens, I've been traumatized around my neck by a previous partner, and so don't make any fast lunge movements towards my neck um." Really, in general, don't make any fast lunge movements anywhere. <laughs> yes. But maybe but, not at all. <laughs> but 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 don't even you know you know because I, I I don't want you to do something and have me like have an involuntary reaction. I I don't want to put you through that. You know I don't want to make you feel bad because you're just trying to be nice. So you know just duly you know note it. And I don't know if you say it without any shame. I, I, I and the person has an ounce of maturity. I can't imagine them reasonably saying that you're a freak for saying something about it.
0: Yeah, I think because I am not married, so I am in this weird dating world right now. Just from my own experience, I think you build it up in your mind a little bit about what they could say in response to it. I have never been with someone who who didn't when I presented it, like, hey, this is what's going on. I'm not trying to kill the mood. This is what's happening. I've never been responded to in the same shame that I'm putting on it myself. So just a little tidbit from someone who's been through it. And Annie has one last question, and then we are going to let you go, unfortunately. I do.
1: Yes. When people finally do decide to move forward in their dating life, is there any advice you have about building confidence and trusting yourself to choose partners That won't repeat Mm -hmm. the same pattern.
2: Well, it'll help if I speak directly to Elise, actually, in this moment, because it'll just provoke real sort of in the moment sort of stuff for me. So, Elise, you have been traumatized. That wasn't your fault. And you deserve to know that. And you deserve to also know that you're strong because you survived. If anything, it's a strength that you managed to get through it. You got out of it. You valued yourself. And you deserve to recover. You deserve to have a partner that trusts, that you can trust, that trusts you, that is not going to hurt you, that has the normal ups and downs, gets upset, but doesn't exploit you, doesn't go after you, doesn't scare you, doesn't stalk you, doesn't try to coerce you to do things, doesn't belittle you, doesn't make you feel like you deserve it or that you're small. They're out there and you deserve that. I, and I'm glad that this has happened and really absorb it, you know, that these fellas, I'm guessing fellas that you've dated, are they fellas that you've dated? Yeah. <laughs> so they are, uh, they have responded in a way that showed that you could trust and that you can say your experience and that you can be vulnerable. And because and, it's, you know, it's its a vulnerable thing. You're, you're putting it out there. You know, they could they could make fun of you. They could run away. They could try to exploit it or something. And they didn't do that, you know, and really absorb that. It's like, oh, what I went through was weird. That was anomalous. That was a weird, strange individual with normal attachment injuries, but a very strange, destructive way of dealing with it. That's not the norm, you know, and the way he treated me has no indication of who I am. They're the weirdo. They're this weird, strange creature that came out of nowhere. And I thought it was normal for a time, but it wasn't, it's just bad luck. I just, you know, I just happened to come across and the rest of the world I can trust. I'm worthy of that. I, I, you know, I can attain that. I I deserve it. And I shouldn't be afraid of of the entire world. I might be a little bit more discerning and I might look for a little bit more red flags. I might pull out a little faster. I don't know, but you know, in all likelihood things should work out maybe as long as I have support. Anyway. So Elise, I hope that You have been able to build that back up for yourself, to become stronger because of it, to cry all the tears and to have all the grief and to, well, let me ask you, I don't know if you want to answer this, but- No,
0: I'm pretty open.
2: Are you in therapy? Yes. And do you talk about the traumas that you've been through with this past partner?
0: Not as much anymore. I did leading up to doing this series. I talked with Annie about it. She agreed to do this series. And then I knew it would bring up a lot of emotion, sharing a story, even just parts of it so publicly. But it was about 13 years ago. So it's something that we talked about very heavily. I was set up with a counselor who then I moved forward with a different therapist that fit me a little bit better. But now it's more of something I just touch in about when I know that there's going to be something that triggers those emotions back up. Sharing that story, I had a lot of that same like fight-or-flight body response just by talking about those memories. So I went back to therapy leading up to this series okay. just to make sure I was checking in.
2: And has your self-esteem still been impacted by these experiences?
0: Um, I think I would be dishonest to say no. It impacts me in the way that I still question who I choose. I feel like I definitely know my worth. But I question my picker, if you want to put it that way, because I didn't see what I felt like I should have seen
2: mm-hmm.
0: as red flags and warning signs. So it's something that I tend to almost overthink as I get into a new relationship mm-hmm. is, am I, am I going to find myself in this same situation because I'm overlooking things that I should be seeing or that others saw that I didn't?
2: Do you think there's a deficit in your picker or your personality that made it so you didn't, uh, you know, see the signs or did you see it as just like you didn't know cuz no one told you?
0: I think it was mainly just cuz I was young and I had never I'd never been through an abusive relationship before. Like I said, I had parents that kind of were great models of a great relationship in my eyes who I em- I wanted to emulate. But yet, I think that's why I didn't trust myself as I saw this great relationship growing up. Of course, they had their struggles and their obstacles, but then how did I choose something so different when I say that this is what I wanted?
2: Yeah, uh, it sounds like you're saying there's something wrong with you, which is not fair to you. I, I don't know if you wanted this conversation to go here, no, but, okay. but your, uh, the language you're using is more the prior what you're, you know, this like, how did I do that? You did it because even I'm a therapist I've treated perpetrators years into that experience I've entered into abusive relationships myself like un, very unpleasant pretty severe situations I should know better I, and I do know better no one knows better no one can protect against these kinds of people there there's there's no amount of education there's no amount of if a vic if a victimizer finds you and you come across them, they're going to get you. And it's just a matter of how long you realize and what your strategy is to get out and how much support you have to get out. Everyone is, everyone's susceptible. So there's, there's no, there's nothing wrong with your picker. There's nothing, you just, you, you, you drew, it was bad luck. You know better now. You could still find yourself six months in saying, how did I get here? It's it's kind of luck of the draw, you know, because if I hadn't met those people, I would never have been in those situations. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with me, and it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the abusive person. That's what's to blame.
0: I
1: love that. I feel like you. I feel like that was really good for you to hear, at least because, yeah, it's always nice coming from someone else who has experience in the field to tell you. Well, it's I not think your it's fault. something that everyone you know? that goes
0: through this experience has to hear not just one time by one person that it's it's nice to hear it again and again. To be honest, my therapist tells it to me when we do talk about this that it's okay. okay. This isn't, you know, something that you chose. I tend to frame things as I chose this, but then I'm reminded very quickly that I didn't choose this for myself. I chose to date the person. I didn't choose the actions that followed.
2: Yeah. And and once once they get their hooks into you, it's really hard to just bow out. You know, it's terrifying. Yeah. There's just no way around it. You know, there are things you can do to try to avoid it, but when, you know, it's sort of like getting sick or COVID or something. Take all the precautions, but you can't just bury yourself in a hole. You've you've got to live your life to some extent, right? And, you know, you got a date. And so it's just, it's sometimes you're going to come across one of those people and they're going to effectively trick you in the beginning, or they'll, ha- you'll have so much chemistry with them that you'll just overlook it a little bit. And, you know, that, that happens.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to take a big deep breath out <laughs> and thank you for saying all of that. It's like I said, it's always good to hear a reminder of that. It isn't your fault and for listeners as well to understand that. And you know i'm sure dr honda will agree with me and i say therapy is a very amazing tool if you find yourself in any of these situations but if you resonated with anything that we talked about today please check out www.thehotline.org of course we'll have that in our show notes and like i said we'll be following this interview up with an interview with a survivor who works with thehotline.org to talk about safety plans and measures that you can take to protect your safety, especially in the age of social media. So if you are like me and you love to figure out the why behind people's actions, or you're a fan of reality TV, I would highly suggest that you guys check out Psychology in Seattle YouTube series where Dr. Honda watches clips from reality TV. I think you've done one or two episodes of The Bachelor, which is my background.
2: Mm -hmm. I was
0: on The Bachelor. So I'm going to not watch those ones, but I watched the 90 Day of Fiance ones. (laughs) And I would really hope that you guys also check out his podcast where he does a lot of deep dives um, into relationship dynamics and psychology. And with that, Dr. Honda, thank you so much for joining us. It was so nice to speak with you again.
1: Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Honda. Our listeners are in for a treat and I cannot wait for them to get their earbuds on this episode because... Not only was educational, but it was very interesting. So I really appreciate your time
2: today. One final note. Yes. Listeners out there, if you care about Elise and Annie and they've helped you, tell them because as a content provider myself, if I might be vulnerable, it is the wind beneath our wings. We do it because of you. We want you to be helped or to be, uh, you know, assisted in some way or be moved or to not be lonely to be justified to to reduce your shame, and Elise is you know really putting yourself out there and if you have it in you to tell them that they're helping you, then i I would do so.
0: I appreciate you saying that so much. Thank you again. Hopefully we'll chat with you soon, maybe about a lighter topic, but on a true crime podcast, probably not. <laughs>
2: I like true crime. I like to talk about psychopaths and all that kind of stuff i'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being. it's interesting.
0: All right. Well, we can maybe dive in deep on, on something that's not such a sensitive topic for me because I'm not a serial killer. So maybe that would be a little easier to discuss. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now you can see why I enjoy his content so much. Um, I really appreciate him coming on. I can't say that enough. I know he is a very busy man. He puts out videos like every day. It seems like there's always something to watch. So again, I will have all of his channels and his podcasts listed in our show notes a huge shout out to him for taking the time to do this you might hear my voice quivering a little bit because i got a little emotional at the end of that um i didn't anticipate it to go in that direction (laughs) and it's always it's tough to share this but like he said i don't want to have a story without that story having purpose so if anyone um again resonated with any of this like this is why we're doing this series so that you can recognize this as you enter the dating field maybe earlier than I did when I was in a relationship or if you're you know have friends or family that are in this this gives you some tips of how to be supportive to them and you know from a professional that knows his stuff obviously he's been working in this field for quite a
1: long time Ugh, Annie his brain is a beautiful place <laughs> I would love to just go in there for a second because yeah not only was he knowledgeable but he was super interesting to me I'm on the edge of my seat. Like, just tell me everything you know. And thank you to all of our listeners who wrote in those questions. We had quite a few people who kind of asked the same questions. So I'm glad that we got those answered. Um, And I hope that people found it beneficial. But like Elise said, we're always going to be linking off those resources where if you don't feel comfortable coming to us, I do not blame you. Um, But always know there is help out there for you. And we are rooting for you if you're in a position that's really difficult.
0: And we love you, even though we don't know you. I'm sending all my love to our listeners. It's a long journey, but as you can hear in my voice again, here I am getting emotional on this podcast. It's a long journey, but it's worth it. The other side truly is greener than where you're at. So again, as always, please check out the hotline.org. If anything um, that we talked about today is sitting heavy with you. There's so many resources for creating safety plans. Next week, Annie is going to be back as we head into February, which is Black History Month. We are going to be covering cases around that. I think it's really important for us to use this podcast where we can to lift up stories that aren't often talked about. It's also important to us to use this podcast to give a voice to the voiceless where we can. So be on the lookout for that. And then the following week, we are going to be talking to a survivor of domestic abuse and giving tips, answering some of your listener questions about how to protect your safety especially in this modern day age of technology and location apps and sharing and snapchat and all this nonsense that we have so please join us for that and do check out the show notes for dr honda's podcast and youtube channel but as always until then